Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert Long with Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. If you're new to the fun that we have here every week, welcome aboard 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the Houston area. And Sean, you've been out for the first couple of days of training camp. I need some quick early thoughts. We're going to go through a list of it. Well, let's start off with the man that everybody wants to know about, C.J. Stroud. What did you see from the rookie quarterback? Ah, uh, man, uh, you know, Stroud, uh, no different really than anything that we saw during OTAs in terms of uh, arm strength. The thing that really stands out for me is when you watch him, Mills, and Keenum throw, there's no question about who throws the better ball. Now that we've got you know, a couple of sessions of mini camp, like best on best, seven on seven, watching the offense on air. And you got two training camp practices in which they've done situational stuff to observe. I mean, right now, as it stands, CJ Stroud's the best freaking dude out there. And to be to be honest, that's that should really say a lot because you and I talked to Case Keenum earlier this offseason. And this guy's been in multiple different versions over the course of the last decade that he's been in the NFL of this offense that Bobby Sloak is running here with the Texans. And a couple of things, you know, that I remember from that conversation that Keenum said is this is like the greatest hits of the West Coast offense. And he also said that this is probably the best system to come into if you're a young, if you're a rookie quarterback. I, I guess I'm, I'm starting to understand kind of why that is. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those reasons later. But in remembering, recalling that that conversation that we had with Case and in watching C.J. Stroud, I guess I could see why a little bit that he'd said that because there are so many avenues in which you could deliver a football. There's so many different options, so many different wrinkles to this offense and I think what I've seen from Stroud is that he's exploring what is going to work or what's working for him to this point. What throws can he afford to force the issue on right now and and learn and figure out and adjust to that maybe another rookie quarterback in another system would be a little bit hesitant to think about making a throw or uh, maybe think twice about making that throw or just simply not make that throw. Look at a check down here or there. I like what I'm seeing from him because he seems to be taking some shots down the field. And I'm not talking about deep balls all the time. I'm talking about forcing the ball in and really showcasing his accuracy with the arm that we've been accustomed to having studied him at Ohio State and certainly watching him a lot closely, more closely this past season when it became a reality that you were probably going to get him or Bryce Young. There's a clear gap you're saying between him and Mills when you watch those guys. As of right now, yeah, 100%. 100%. Like, if, if you ask me right now, like, you're a novice, you, you have no idea about Stroud, Keenum, or Mills, where they're at in the stages of their career. If you don't know who was just drafted, how old anybody is, like, hey, here's these quarterbacks. Who's the best? Like, who's the starter? I think you'd point to Stroud, like, pretty easily. <laughs> Yeah, no names, and it's uh, C.J. Stroud. That's the guy that's going to stick out. Last year's second-round pick, John Mechie, back from cancer. How did he look? I noticed him a little bit more today than I did yesterday, to be honest with you. Um, It's kind of funny. I didn't ask this question, but maybe I will, you know, depending on what I see tomorrow. But it does seem like they're – 
showcasing different guys as they're continuing this refresh of an install through two days of camp. We'll see how it looks for three days, you know, through three days tomorrow. But Mechie, to me, flashed a little bit more today. I just, I seem to notice his route running a little bit more. Look, he made some nice catches, you know, on a little hitch, some crossing routes, putting a little extra time, uh, playing catch on the side. Uh, after practice, I, I, I like what I see and I really like what I hear because even unprompted, you know, coaches, players, they're mentioning this guy aside from the fact that, hey, he spent the last year battling cancer, you know, leukemia, and now he's on a football field. I really wish we would have gotten to hear from him personally uh, through these first two days. Why is unclear. I'm not sure of that. I think it's a hell of a story, but I think just from a football sense, Never mind the personal struggles, the health issues that he's been through. It's pretty clear that he could be a playmaker if he's able to grasp this offense and get these route concepts down, get some chemistry developed with Stroud and just really all of the quarterbacks. Because right now, he's going to have all these quarterbacks thrown in the ball. It's about just developing timing and chemistry with all of them. Because you, as, as a receiver, as anybody but a quarterback, anybody could be throwing you a football at any given time. So you have to be prepared for everything. And I just think that his dynamic yeah. playmaking ability was a little bit more on display today than uh, than yesterday. Mechie, Nico, and Tank Dell all chosen in the top three rounds of the last three drafts. There's also Xavier Hutchison from this year. Anybody stand out among the toddler wideouts? I guess I should just call them the toddler wideouts since we got so many young guys here. I thought Tank had a better day today. Um, you know, he missed some balls yesterday. I don't know if it was necessarily his fault or Stroud's fault, but I do know they worked uh, together after practice had concluded yesterday. I don't know about today. Um, I think I recall seeing Petrie and Stroud jog off the football field together pretty close to the end of practice. I don't know if they put any work in, and if they did, uh, it was well after the fact. Maybe they went in to cool off, but I think Tank you know, stood out to me, you know, he's been getting some reps at punt return as well, doing a fine job there from what I've seen. He, along with Des King, are probably the two standouts there. But in terms of pass catching today, he caught a really nice one that probably goes for a touchdown. It was a nice little intermediate crossing route, caught it in traffic, turned it up the field and looked like he would have scored a really good, strong, accurate throw. Uh, kind of one of those where Stroud put it only where he really could have caught it, which, you know, what's what you like to see. And, you know, he's made a number of throws. Uh, Stroud has. The accuracy is certainly prevalent. But uh, Tank stood out. Hutchinson made a nice catch early in practice today, but I really haven't seen too much of him. Um, Nico's been steady. I'll tell you this. Sim's getting reps. Um, but I don't know why, and I don't know for how much longer. I mean, aside from, you know, catching a punt, in my opinion, the guy can't catch footballs thrown by quarterbacks <laughs> maybe okay. off the legs of punters but <laughs> yeah yeah I don't it doesn't look like he's gonna make the team um last year's first round pick Kenyon Green's back on the field after knee surgery what can you tell us about him after the first two days he was running with the twos and then the ones is that right he he he, he moved up well, yesterday, he wasn't really working with anybody. He didn't do any team stuff yesterday. He just did a whole bunch of drills. Okay. And then today, he started with the ones. And so there's like there's like two different sessions of practice in the morning. And so they, the, today, they went a little bit longer than they did yesterday. They went from about 9 o'clock, a little after, till uh, just about 11 o'clock. And so it's broken up in like 
you got individual, and then you're going to go team, then you're going to go special team, then you're going to go team, and then you're going to go special team, and then you kind of end with situational stuff, like the last handful of minutes where it's a little bit different today than OTAs, where it's not like a fourth and 16, but it's just you're trying to move the ball down the field. It's like best on best, right? And you're rotating ones and twos in. And towards that latter half of practice, after running with the ones in the first session, he was on the side watching. It was Michael Dieter in at left guard, who seemed to be doing a fine job as well. I think it's important because, you know, one of the biggest concerns you have to have for Kenyon Green is, yeah, hey, look, he's a former first-round pick entering his second year, but this is two knee surgeries in back-to-back years and twice in back-to-back years where he's been, at least from day one, limited going into training camp. And I think, you know, that at such a young age, you got to kind of have a wait-and-see approach to it. But, you know, you've heard the reports like he's beefed up a little bit in terms of strength this offseason. Body type hasn't changed too much to my eye. Um, we'll see just how stronger, how much stronger he actually has gotten once you put pads on and these guys start going for real here uh, in the next week and a half when they're able to put pads on. But, you know, just him getting out there today is is a positive step. The fact that he was even out there yesterday doing drills and individual stuff was a positive step. He looks fine. I haven't seen him spend any time underneath the training tent which is a plus if all systems are go for Kenyon green. And this is just the start of a progression, which I think it is, you know, drills first half of team tomorrow. I would anticipate seeing him in the latter half of practice running with the ones, at least the twos. And so we'll kind of see, but I think that should be the progression if everything's going to, to, to plan. Yeah. We're recording this Thursday night. So this is after two days of practice that people don't, uh, or not sure where we're at right now. Is Will Anderson running with the ones or the twos? And did he show you some juice the first couple of days here? You, you know, to be honest with you, I watched him more closely today than I did uh, yesterday. He was with the ones today and showed just how disruptive he could be. He got in the backfield, would have been a TFL, but, you know, they kind of let the play continue because – you know, they're working on both. So you get in the backfield, it's kind of one of those things, especially if you get to the quarterback, you throw your hands up, let him complete the throw, or you're kind of kind of let see the play play out. And he, he got in the backfield at least one time that I saw, and then a couple of plays later, I mean, my God, it took like the whole the whole right side of the offensive line to kind of keep him from getting in the backfield. Dude was a freaking maniac. I was really encouraged to see that. He looks like an absolute monster just standing there. And this is without pads, mind you. I cannot wait for another week and a half to pass so we can see this dude in pads because he's going to look like an absolute beast. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, Who flashed in the Texans' new secondary with Shaq Griffin and Jimmy Ward added to Petrie and Stingley? I want to say in large part it's been unprompted, but, uh, you know, Steven Nelson showed up day one. You know, reported on Tuesday, along with every other veteran and rookie and unprompted, you know, uh, a number of players have mentioned him like, hey, man, you know, glad to see Steve Nelson out here today. He got his first interception, albeit it was from the arm of uh, Davis Mills, but he got his first interception. He's been playing really well. Um, You know, I was looking at a little install package this morning, a session in which we're not allowed to film where the defense uh, is going 
you know, on air with no offense. And you had Derek Stingley, Steven Nelson, Jalen Petrie, Jimmy Ward, and you had a nickel in there. I want to say it was in and out with Tavier Smith and Desmond King, if I recall. I want to say I saw more Desmond than Tavier. But Steven looked really, really sharp, really good. And look, he's been lauded the last couple of days by D'Amico Ryans and a lot of other players for his leadership, his work ethic, just being there and working hard. So he's kind of flashed uh, for everybody else. For me as well, I saw the pick, which was cool. But what I really noticed is Jonathan Joseph, who you know is a part of this Texans training camp coaching staff. During that 11 on that, I'll call it defense on air session this morning to start practice, Jonathan Joseph was working very closely with Derek Stingley. It was, it was probably like a seven to 10 minute session. He took every single moment he could between reps. You know, like while D'Amico's shouting out plays or giving a sequence or, or, you know, not a sequence, but a scenario, he's taking every single moment to work with Stingley. If it's on hand placement, if it's on like a read step, if it's on breaking down, if it's getting his eyes in the right spot, they were doing a lot of talking. And I say they, but Stingley was doing all of the listening and Jonathan Joseph was doing all of the talking. So I, I think it was really cool to see that. And I'll just add this. That's been the number one takeaway for me for just two days because I've been keeping a close eye on just how active Jonathan Joseph is as a coach. And I'm going to ask this question tomorrow if that's if that's something that needs to carry over, if it is, into the film room, you know, inside the building over there. I, I think it's invaluable, the fact that you have such an accomplished former player who's so freshly removed from playing himself on your coaching staff at training camp, working with such young guys, particularly a guy like Derek Stingley. I was out there quite a bit during the Jonathan Joseph era, and you're in the locker room with Jonathan Joseph. Yeah. There's no question how much he was respected, not just by the guys that he played with, but when you went out there to get interviews, one of the first guys, if JJ came out, everybody in the media wanted to get his thought on stuff because one of the smartest Texans players ever to suit up just really thoughtful. And I'm guessing, Sean, I, I haven't, you know, heard you say anything about this, but I'm guessing Jonathan Joseph isn't out there yelling and screaming. Jonathan Joseph is not that guy. He's he's somebody that's just, he's going to quietly come over and say, okay, this is what you need to do. And this and this and this, right? Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Granted, it's, you're two days in. And so the expectations are kind of here. And look, Nick Casario talked about it this morning. He was on air with, uh, uh, Payne and Pendergast on Sports Radio 610. And, you know, they asked him like, hey, all right, you know, so what's the protocol over the first, you know, couple of days, week of practice, you know, like what are, what are guys going over? And it's basically through these first seven or eight days of training camp practices, this is almost like a refresher of what's already been installed in meetings, during OTAs, during mini camps you know, the materials that players have already gotten their hands on before camp even started. And so you're refreshing. And then little by little, obviously, you know, as they deem the team ready, you know, the particular unit ready to do so, they're going to add, you know, more and more stuff. Expectations are here, I think, in terms of like, hey, we just need to get this down. Granted, <laughs> it's funny because I talked to Robert Woods earlier today and he's like, hey, we need this stuff now. It's like we're trying to make plays right now. And look, that's an 11th year pro. I get where he's coming from. And so that might be an interesting follow offensively to see where his expectations are in terms of picking up an offense that he's already pretty familiar with versus him being a mentor and uh, another coach on the field for you know some of these younger receivers. 
I'm going to go outside of something that happened at camp, but something that happened right before camp. Titus Howard finally gets that extension, three years, $56 million. I think it's something like 36, 38 guaranteed. Just a reminder for anybody that forgot last year, 997 snaps last year. Pro Football Focus had him at a 67.9, not elite, but still pretty good considering how many positions he's been bounced around over the last couple of years, which I was never a fan of. And Sean, it's worth noting that he allowed just three sacks last year. What did you think of the extension? I loved it. Um, I thought it was necessary. You know, once Laramie got, you know, his record-breaking deal for the second time, uh, highest paid left tackle in NFL history. You extend Shaq Mason. I think, um, you know, Titus Howard, look, he's right now with this extension, the fourth highest paid right tackle in the entire league until the next guy comes along. And then there's another guy. Do I think his play, you know, uh, warrants that right now? Maybe not in terms of a large sample size, but he's coming off of his best season. And he, look, he had to play guard for like a, a minute, <laughs> you know, last year in a pinch, I think, but it's right tackle. And he made certain that on his bio, you know, his biograph on the Texans website says right tackle Titus Howard, nothing else. And so that's what he wants. That's what he is. That's what he's going to be paid like. And that's the expectation. It was important for this Texans team, I think, to fortify that offensive line. And granted, look, Two-fifths of it right now, for being honest with ourselves, is still, you know, in serious question because you don't know what you're going to get out of Juice Drugs or Kenyon Green at this point. It's just unknown, unproven. But I thought but, but you, you've got two tackles now that are, you know, in bold print for the next three years yeah. that are going to be protecting your rookie quarterback. 100%, all of them. And, and to me, that's the most important thing. Every single one of these offensive linemen that is expected to play a key role uh, this year and going forward, and that's including Jared Patterson, who was drafted in the sixth round this past April, they're all signed through 2026. You have an opportunity for the Texans to, you know, have the most consistent and most competitive and really flat-out best offensive line since you've had in the days when you had Chris Myers, Wade Smith, Dwayne Brown, Mike Brazell, and Eric Winston. And you only had those guys for two years strong. You lost Brazell, and, I, you know, you didn't want to pay Winston. And, you know, Dwayne Brown, that situation happened. Chris Myers got old, and Wade Smith retired and or moved on and then retired. It's like you couldn't keep those guys together. And the fact that you have, you know, a pretty young unit. And granted, look, Laramie's a little longer in the tooth than a lot of these guys, but I think it's huge to have that veteran presence, especially for a uh, rookie quarterback like C.J. Stroud. I think it was very, very key and. Look, I, I thought he was going to get top money, and look, he's inside top five money for a right tackle, and I think that's something that he's definitely going to earn. Yeah, just develop chemistry, which is something that the Texans offensive line couldn't do the last few years and didn't help that the coaching staff was a revolving door. The offensive line coach, I thought, stunk during, well, most of the Bill O'Brien era, and, and that guy stuck around, I think, even into Cully. I wasn't a fan of his, but let me ask you, Casario and D'Amico, they were at the mic the first two days. Anything interesting from either of those two guys uh, that you, you heard? You know, Casario, it's pretty easy no. Um, <laughs> however, you know, I thought it was kind of – it was pretty funny. You know, I asked him a question about Steven Nelson. Uh, I didn't think it was going to get asked, by the way. I, I usually just kind of sit back, and I, I'm not trying to, you know, step over people and ask questions because we're all going to ask the same damn thing anyway at some point in time. But, hell, when somebody asked about the weather – 
I said, ain't nobody going to ask about Steven Nelson. So I asked him about Steven Nelson, if he reported, if there's been any dialogue, conversation, contractually. And <laughs> I got a pretty funny response from Casario the other day. And it was uh, something to the effect like, you know, well, look, we've had constructive dialogue and he doesn't like my wardrobe, but that's okay. And he was kind of chuckling and smiling about that. But I guess the biggest takeaway in that response and really the entire conversation that we had with him was the we'll see approach to Steven Nelson. It was like, we'll see how it goes in camp. Hey, look, I know how he feels about his situation. I know he, how he feels about me personally. And I'm just kind of reading between the lines, uh, just judging by the way that this team has operated before. They might tolerate, you know, a little bit unrest with a player, but for how long is the question, you know, and I'm pointing at Brandon Cooks here. So I think Steven Nelson, it's up to him to perform. And if the Texans deem that they're going to need him going into the season, maybe they make it right. Maybe they revisit con contract discussions with him. And I shouldn't say revisit because it's according to reports and everything that I've heard, they haven't had any contract discussions with Steven Nelson, but maybe they do get to that point if he performs well in training camp and preseason. So that's kind of like my biggest takeaway. Now, as far as D'Amico goes, I'll say my biggest takeaway from him today was, I think it was unprompted. He started his press conference saying that, hey, the offense came out yesterday not where it was supposed to be. And today, I don't even need to, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, he was asked about going to look at film. He was like, I could see it from the field, how improved the offense was from yesterday to today, Thursday. They came out sharp. They were ready to roll. They were on schedule. And I think that's a huge positive for a guy that's running, you know, his first training camp. And he is the overseer of all things and is trying to split his time amongst defense, offense, special teams, and make sure everything's going smoothly. And look, yesterday didn't go like he maybe wanted to, but the fact that you got it on track for day two, you know, let's see how that carries over to day three. I thought that was an important little note from D'Amico who acknowledged, hey, we weren't at our best yesterday, but we fixed it today. Dalton Schultz and Robert Woods spoke. Did the new vets say anything that got your attention? Both of the, the Robert Woods and Dalton Schultz were asked pretty extensively about the uh, offense and what they're seeing from Sloic, what it's like being in the film room with him, what it's like being coached by him, how good of a teacher is he, what are we to expect, what are the intricacies of this offense, how easy is it for a young quarterback to, to, to learn, to pick up, and particularly receivers. I think it was Dalton Schultz. I'm going to write about this a little bit later, and I think I probably put it in my observations piece that will come out later today on SportsRadio610.com. But it was Schultz that, that said, you know, look, hey, this is a very quarterback-friendly system, and it's also a very tight end-friendly system. But it's really friendly for all because the volume of plays and things you could do are certainly there and they're prevalent. And it made me think back to what Case Keenum said when he called this offense versatile and multiple. But he also made mention of how quarterback friendly it was and how, how great of a system foundationally it is for a young, particular rookie quarterback coming into it. And so I started thinking about that. And I'm going to do some more digging on that uh, tomorrow and through the weekend and next week, just talking to different guys and trying to figure out a little bit more as to why what about the language what about the looks and you know Schultz and Woods both kind of gave us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain in terms of like hey look yeah this is what Woods said it was difficult but it's also simple at the same time 
And I think when he said difficult, he's probably alluding to the volume of plays and things you could do out of certain packages and concept. But Slowick not only tells you like, hey, here's the play, here's the play call, here's the design, but it's here's what we're trying to do. Here are the splits. So, you know, Schultz kind of took us through this like, all right, he's a tight end. He's got to be able to make sure he's in the right spot, but he has he has to understand what that slot's doing, what that wideout's doing, if their splits are correct, if they're supposed to be on or off the line of scrimmage, and if they're wrong and he's if that slot's running an in route, you know, and he's running an out route, well, if you're two yards closer to the line of scrimmage than you're supposed to be, that's going to mess the timing up. That's going to mess everything up on that side of the field. And so it's just about learning those types of little intricacies. And it, I went back to what Keenum said. Bobby Slowick is so detail-oriented and has his nose in it to the max. But as a teacher, he's made it fun. He's made it really easy for guys to approach him and ask questions and, 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 you know, do the best they can at learning this right now. Anything that I missed, anything that jumped out to you that we haven't talked about to this point? I'm going to be paying a little bit more close attention to the defense, particularly the defensive line tomorrow, uh, because I do want to see who's rotating in where, you know, we talked to Malik Collins a little bit today, but you're not getting much from him. I mean, he's a very quiet individual, just stays, you know, to himself, very buttoned up. I, I want to see how he's looking on the on that interior because the interior D line is equally as important as the offensive line, <laughs> you know. And D'Amico's talked about that a little bit over the course of the last couple of days. But this team was just hemorrhaging yards up the middle, you know, via the run last year. That's a position where they've just got to get tougher. And so if it's Malik Collins, you know, in a three technique, in a two eye, or if they're playing you know, even a shade or, or a zero at times, like it's just flat out got to be better. And it's a toughness thing. So I'm going to be looking a little bit closer at the D line and see what I can find out there. But outside of that, man, I, I, I think, you know, all things for the first two days, you know, D'Amico's first training camp, such an in, entirely different staff and young staff, unproven and experienced to, you know, some degree in this position. I think everything's going pretty well. And I know this, Fans will be out there tomorrow. So there's going to be a lot of extra juice on that practice field, which I think is going to help this team. Because, Robert, the last couple of days, even today, they said, all right, hey, yeah, look, the offense had a much better, more crisp day today than day one. And everybody that we talked to cited, man, it's hot. You know, guys were just sluggish. They were worn down. They were just spent. Well, what happens, you know? in the hottest of weather, in the coldest of weather, when you're just gassed and you can't do it anymore, you got fans in the stands cheering your name, ooh and an on for this play, that play, breathes a little bit more life into the building, breathes a little bit more life onto the field for the players. And so I think that's going to make a difference and kind of give you a different feel two days into camp, which, at, you know, two days in in this heat, it can already feel monotonous. Yeah, it's comical when I hear somebody asking the Texans, stat, you know, GM or coach, whatever, whoever about the – this is – this is, it's the same every year. I mean, this is what it is. This is it's hot. I hate, I hate weather questions. Like, I, I wanted to scoop a few people's eyeballs out today and yesterday for asking weather questions. But I, I calmed myself down because I realized, you know, didn't have to do too much thinking on this. But, you know, not all 90 of these guys are not from Houston. 
they're from a lot of different places in the country and they've played for, you know, various pro different programs and climates and stuff like that. So I get to a certain degree, <laughs> you know, no yeah. pun intended that. All right. Yeah. The heat questions, you know, they're, they're fine, I guess. But, in the but early you stages, could, they can pull out the same answers though every year. I mean, yeah. But I mean, you know, they're football players. They all played high school. They all played college. They played in some of the hottest dang stadiums you could play in. I mean, I, everybody's played on a stadium where it's been 110, 115 degrees on the field, you know, with no wind. And they know that misery. And so, like, hey, it's Houston. Um, let, let's let's move beyond. Because, hey, you want to talk about hot, like, there's also the heat and humidity in Jacksonville. So you're going to have to go there at least one time a year and – uh, maybe you have a joint practice with those guys down the road at some point in time and save the heat questions for those knuckleheads. But I, if anybody asks the damn heat question going forward after these first couple of days, I'm just going to scratch my eyeballs out. At least the weather questions were unique when they had that one training camp a couple weeks uh, up there in Virginia. But, you know, if you're in Houston, it's just, we, you know, they, they, they we've done OTAs, we've done many, we, you know, and it, it's kind of been this, Mostly what what it's been out uh, yeah. so far, so it's not anything differently. I don't want to talk too much about the Astros, but I'm concerned. Framber Valdez not looking good his last few starts, and we talked about this, Sean. I mean, I said, okay, who I, we talked about the last show? Who do you have confidence in? And I said four pitchers with Framber. Now I'm not even sure about Framber. This is a real concern, and I guess. It's just a lot of young pitchers that the Astros have that, you know, had to come back from a long season last year into early November. And you're asking a lot from these guys to like, okay, we're going to run it back again. And, and it's not like they weren't in the World Series the year before. Yeah. And they weren't almost in the World Series the year before. So this is for, for some of these guys. I know this is like they're, they haven't been through this before. So there's that. And then the other guys have been through it. And it's still a lot for them. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a worry. You know, uh, I'm just kind of thinking through some things as you're talking there. And this offseason, you know, for multiple reasons, is probably one that Jim Crane wishes he had back. That, you know, he makes a general manager hire much sooner than later, as he did. Doesn't go through that whole month-plus period with Jeff Bagwell as his you know, GM. They needed but, to go get a starting pitcher they do. when Verlander they do, walked out of the building. They when, needed to go do that. When Verlander, when they made the decision that they weren't going to pay Verlander, that's what I was getting to, it's almost as if they had way too much trust, faith in Lance McCullers because of one thing, and that's what they're paying him and for how long they're paying him. And there was no contingency for that. And it was almost like they were operating like, Okay, surely he's good now. After so much time off, rest, rehabilitation, we skip the surgery. We don't have to worry about it. He'll be fine. And then day one, day two of spring training this year, it's just like all hell breaks loose. And then what happens with Luis Garcia, what happens with Jose Urquidy, and it's like bada bing, bada boom. Like, here you are. You're in this pickle. You, you always need seven or eight starters if you're a major league baseball club now to get through the season, the Astros proved last year that it was great to have a six man rotation. Yeah. Uh, so guys could be fresh for the playoffs. Your starters could be fresh. So if you're doing a six man rotation, you definitely need seven or eight guys. And then 
you might factor in more than that because the Astros were so darn lucky last year with well, no injuries. And, you know, look, they went to the six-man rotation last year after the All-Star break, and it was kind of like their bread and butter. It was the uh, secret elixir, right? It, it worked, and it carried them through the postseason. Um, and it might very well be the case this year, but they're just going to have to get really creative with whom and how they do that and how they how they accumulate those extra arms. Because if the Astros would have taken care of business this past offseason and gone out and got a top-of-the-line starting pitcher to replace Justin Verlander, not put all their eggs in the basket, but Lance McCullers, or hell, anybody, any starter, I, I don't any know. starter. I, yeah, they didn't need a top-of-the-line guy. There's a really strong possibility that you wouldn't know really who the hell J.P. France or Renel Blanco are at this point in time because you might not have even seen them, been introduced to them, heard their name uh, very much until, you know, late August, September, when you're trying to, you know, rest some guys, give guys a break, or maybe somebody's worn down or gotten hurt, you know, like has been the case multiple times with multiple bodies and, this, you know, with the staff this year. Then maybe, you know, you call J.P. France up a la Hunter Brown last year and you see what he can give you. Then maybe you need to go pull from a Brandon Belak or Renel Bronco Blanco uh, this year. Uh, like you've had in, in the past, but you had to kind of spend all your ammunition almost from day one this season. And now you've put yourself into a situation where to get the guy you want in the rotation, and I don't even know that he's out there, but to get a guy that you want in the rotation, it's going to cost you that wears, it's going to cost you somebody or some bodies that already are currently wearing a Houston Astros uniform right now today. And then what are the effects going to be for you offensively? Um, and I'm pointing, I'm looking at Chaz McCormick, and I, I just hope that's not the deal. If he's the centerpiece of a deal, that's that's going to sting. And I know good deals sometimes, you know, the old adage is good deals really sting, and it sucks for both sides. But um, this just feels like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for the Astros. Well, the bigger, the bigger thing that you could lose in this is one of your good young pitchers like Spencer Aragetti. Yeah. That you go, okay, well, we don't need Spencer Aragetti this year. But guess what? You might need Spencer Aragetti the next four or five years because where are you in the next four or five years if Luis Garcia might not even start the season next year? Lance McCullers sure. is not going to start the season next year. Now we're hearing. Then you don't know where you are with Christian Javier because, you know, is, is he the Christian Javier that we saw? Or is there something bigger wrong with Christian. I'm still scared. There's something bigger wrong with Christian Javier. So like you go, okay, we don't need Spencer Aragetti this year, but I mean, down the road, you need the Spencer Aragetti's to yeah. hold up rotation. Like we and, saw with these guys this year. And if you, and if you need them, but you don't have them, then it's going to cost you uh, not just financially, but it might cost you talent wise. Um, you know, somebody in which you, you're not able to retain because you have to go spend your money elsewhere. So maybe you're not able to re-sign a Bregman. Maybe you're not able to offer a big deal to Tucker. Maybe you're not able to re-up Altuve at some point in time. Um, you know, it's a trickle-down effect, you know. if, if There's just so many uh, possibilities. And it, it's a situation that, you know, look, it, these things can have a domino effect. However, we're still in that idle mode, man. And we're inside of just, you know, what, four or five days now, hell, four days of Dana Brown making some key moves. You know, I don't know that we need a big blockbuster. I don't know that we 
maybe just need a few uh, minor splashes here or there, just something to improve this staff on uh, the bullpen and, and uh, from a starting standpoint. But we don't really know what he's capable of just yet. Um, I, I do kind of look at him with a side eye right now from what he'd said the other day in terms of like just narrowing the market down because Major League Baseball this year is so darn competitive. I mean, you can literally count on one hand the amount of teams that are stinkers this year. And that fifth one is like, depending on the, the division, it's really it's really not that bad of a ball club. I mean, there's not a lot of stinkers out there that are selling ball players. You know, like the White Sox that are just, hey, everybody's for sale over here. Come get them. You're just gonna it's gonna cost you. I, I think I'd be looking at like the middle market teams right now, teams that are still kind of like the Angels, who for some reason have just gone all in. Like they ain't winning a damn thing this year. But teams like them that maybe have an abundance of talent in the bullpen or starting rotation you gotta maybe that maybe that team doesn't exist but i think you have to look pretty close and a package might be more attractive to them to maybe shore up their outfield or their minor league infield and you get what you want this year yeah but but you just said you you just said the issue which is there's a lot of teams out there that think they're in this thing and if there's a lot of teams out there the bidding gets higher and higher and i'm just saying I'm just saying, be careful because yeah. I think right now with where the Astros starting rotation is going into two or three months down the road, we're talking about in the playoffs. I'm saying, you know, it looks like it's going to take a miracle for the, the Astros to get three or four guys in that rotation that you trust. And it's going to take lightning in a bottle and you could go, well, we've seen lightning in a bottle, but this is about Vegas. And do you go in on lightning in a bottle? You go all in on lightning in a bottle and start mortgaging the next two, three, four, or five years down the road with guys that you're going to give. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, the Chas McCormick's, you talk about that. I'm not worried about the Ch- giving up a Chas McCormick, even though I love Chas McCormick. I'm not worried about that because outfielders you can get, young, in control, by the organization, starting pitchers are hard to find. Yeah, yeah. Um I just I think it's going to be really interesting over the next three, four days before the deadline if there are teams out there that kind of juxtapose the mentality that the Angels had, right? Like the Angels, they went out and they gave up two of their top prospects to get Giolito and uh, another Chicago White Sox reliever. I can't remember his name right now, uh, like Ronaldo Lopez or something. Um, just a middling guy, right? But if, if you're a Boston, if you're a New York Yankees, if you're St. Louis Cardinals, a Detroit Tigers, uh, you know, hell, a San Diego Padres team that was supposed to be world beaters this year, Colorado, like, does somebody or somebody's exist on those ball clubs? And look, Colorado's not a middling club. They're a bad ball club this year. Uh, they're going to be sellers. But maybe like a Arizona, let's just say, or even a Cubs. Teams that very well could take the same approach as the Angels have and be buyers for the future, for nothing if for nothing else, maybe they just say, you know what? Like we're gonna we're gonna retool this offseason. And yeah, we're willing to part with this, that, and the other piece. Like, I wanna see who's gonna be able to like look themselves in the mirror over the course of the next two, three days and maybe come to that reality that maybe for their ball club particularly, it is the best case scenario and how that could benefit the Astros. I'm glad the Astros 
weren't an Anaheim Angels, uh, so to speak, in in the sense that they weren't the first one to kind of set that bar. Like the bar set took two of your top prospects, and granted, look, the Angels' top two prospects are not equivalent to the Astros' top two prospects, but you see what I'm saying. I'm glad the Astros weren't that first team to strike, and I really hope they're not the last team to strike because that team is desperate. they got to fall somewhere in the middle over the course of these next two, three days, I think, to get the best value, the best deal, and what they want to make the determination if they can get that player to help them make that stretch run this year for another World Series. Yeah, we might be talking about what the Astros have, I think we are going to be talking because I believe it's the 31st is our next show about what the Astros did in the trade market. Also hoping to have on USA Today Texans analyst John Crumpler on Monday as well. So it's going to be a big show for us, a lot going on. And, you know, with the Texans training camp, it's 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 fun to have that going on for sure. And, and we'll see what the Astros do, but uh, look forward to it, Sean. Look forward to hearing about your stuff. I mean, just great stuff today. Just great stuff on the Texans. Thank you. Yeah, Good stuff. We'll have it every day for you, man. Uh, just new content. You can check me out, sportsradio16.com, us on this podcast twice a week. Uh, good, fresh, unique content. And, hey, it's a great time of year, man. It's getting fun in baseball. Uh, Rockets, before you know it, they're right around the corner, and uh, Texans are heating up. We'll have, uh, we'll have a, a good young franchise quarterback leading an offense uh, in the regular season to talk about very, very soon. So I'm pumped up for that. Yeah, I don't say it, but it's right there on YouTube. It's at Sean Bajani. And of course, if you're listening to it, it's always in the description. Look for uh, his Twitter handle, our, our Twitter handle, which which I'm, I'm ro- rolling with that one, with which is at HST Podcast. But uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Everybody out there, have a good week. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.